I'm going to begin by asking you a question that I don't think you've ever been asked before. Someone may come up to me after this lesson and say, you know, somebody actually asked me that question once, but I doubt it. What would you do, what would you do if you found yourself in the belly of a whale? For three days and three nights, what would you do if you found yourself in the belly of a whale? You've never been asked that before, have you? Well, if you're a person of faith, then I can tell you one thing that you probably would do. You would pray. I mean, after some period of time, you're going to realize that your situation is dire. You're not in a good place. And there is only one way that you're going to get out of the belly of this well, and that is if God somehow intervenes in your life and takes you out of that belly. Now, I'll ask you a question that I know everybody here can answer, and that is, who am I talking about? I would say even the younger children among us could answer that question. It's, it's Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of a well. He was in the belly of a large fish, for three days and three nights. It's just hard to imagine what that experience would have been like. And we know why he was there as well. He was trying to run away from God. He thought he could run away from God. He thought he could get on a ship after being told that you need to go to Nineveh and you need to preach to the Ninevites not wanting to do that because the Assyrians were the enemies of God's people. He got on a ship and he headed in the other direction. God sent the storm. They found out that he was the issue, he was the problem, and they threw him overboard and he found himself in the belly of the well. And he prayed. We have a record of that prayer in Jonah, the second chapter. I'd like to read to you that prayer I wrote an article in last week's newsletter titled, The Prayer of the Penitent. It was based on that week's memory verse, which was Jonah chapter 2 and verse 9. But I want to read the prayer in its entirety. Jonah prayed to the Lord in verse 1 of chapter 2 from the stomach of the fish, and this is what he said. This is what you do when you're in the belly of a well. Now, you'll notice at the end of the prayer, and I, I want to go ahead and say this, that the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. It may or may not have been that that happened right as he ended the prayer, but there's a statement that Jonah makes that would seem to indicate such was the case. But Jonah writes, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, the Mediterranean Sea, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So Jonah's sinking. At some point he's in the belly of the well. I said, I've been expelled from your sight. He knew he was not where he needed to be. 
He knew that he had lost fellowship with God in this rebellion, in this moment of rebellion. But he looked to the future, verse 4, Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And then he acknowledges in verse 8, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. The word penitent is the same word as repentant. It speaks of one who is sorrowful over sin. It speaks of one who realizes that they have transgressed, they have digressed, they have apostatized, they have moved away from God, and they're sorry. And they're experiencing consequences of that decision to move away from God, and they're sorry. But they're not only sorrowful, they are sorrowful to the point that they want to change. And that's where Jonah was. He didn't change his mind about the Assyrians, but he did change his mind about God's commandment to go and preach. He was sorrowful to the point of repentance. He was penitent. And what we see in Jonah chapter 2 in verse 9 is the prayer of one who reaches that point in life. I'll ask you to think with me about this prayer and how needful it is that we inject into our own prayer life the elements of the prayer as expressed by Jonah chapter 2 and verse 9. We see first a voice of thanksgiving. Jonah says, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. You bring me out of this. You get me out of this place, and I'm going to be thankful. I'm going to be thankful like I've never been thankful before. I'm going to look on life with fresh eyes. I'm going to have a new perspective. Everything. From this point forward, I'm going to find some reason to be thankful. And what Jonah was really saying in this statement was, I'm going to be devout. You see, thankfulness is a sign of devotion to God. You remember when Paul was writing about the, the pagan Gentiles in, in the book of Romans? And he said that they refused to acknowledge God. They did not know God or give thanks. I've always found it intriguing that 
that's, that's one of the, the, the first steps toward total apostasy. It's one of the first steps toward totally removing yourself from God. And I think the reason for that is because you're no longer mindful of God's presence. You no longer see God's hand in all that there is in your life. When we pray, do we pray with this voice of thanksgiving? I want you to notice in the book of Psalms, and the Psalms are always a good place to go, but, but the language here is, is very similar to what we, we see in Jonah's prayer, that is the language of Psalm chapter 50, verses 14 and 15. The psalmist here wrote, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Jonah said, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. This was devotion. Call upon me in the day of trouble, God says. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. You see, the prayer of the penitent is moving one closer to God. It's, it's moving one to that point at which in your day of trouble, you're going to call upon God and you're going to do so with the understanding and the faith and the trust that God is going to rescue you and when God rescues you as he did Jonah, then you're going to honor him. You're going to do God's will. Whether you understand it, whether you agree with it, whether you accept it, you're going to do it. In verse 23 of this same psalm, he who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. You almost have to wonder if, if Jonah was familiar with this psalm. Or it may be that the psalmist was familiar with the prayer of Jonah, depending on when the psalm was written. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 18, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. In everything. Give thanks. In the belly of the well, give thanks. See in your life everything that God has given you, all of the blessings, even those things that cause you pain. In everything, the Bible says, give thanks. I was thinking yesterday... And I have a feeling a lot of you experience this over the Thanksgiving holiday. We all eat turkey on Thanksgiving, don't we? Don't you love turkey? Just love to eat turkey. It's great on Thanksgiving to eat turkey, isn't it? What about Friday night when you've had it three times Friday? And then on Saturday when you have turkey again? I would venture to say someone here besides me had the thought, I'm tired of eating turkey. Well, what am I doing? I was thanking God for that, thir that, that turkey on Thursday, and now I'm complaining about it on Saturday. <laughs> was that the voice of thanksgiving? We need to think about that, don't we? Not just thanksgiving and turkey, but in everything in life. Do we complain about 
the good things? Do we complain about the bad things? Or do we thank God? In everything do we give thanks. The Hebrew author stated in chapter 13 and verse 15, through Him, that is, through Christ, you know, we, we, we see everything, we should see everything differently through fresh eyes in our walk with the Lord. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. The prayer of the penitent is a voice of thanksgiving. Secondly, the prayer of the penitent, we see a heart of commitment. Jonah said, that which I have vowed, I will pay. Vows take on new meaning under the old covenant. And I'm not going to go into the details in all of that, but I am going to say this. You know what a vow is. It's a promise. You say you're going to do something. You say you're going to do something. And, and, and a vow is a commitment. And it's a commitment that if you speak it, should be taken seriously because it's a promise that you're going to do something. And if you're a promise keeper, you're going to keep your vow. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes is, is writing about going to the house of God. And he states in verse 1 of chapter 5, and I think he's really writing about prayer. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. I think the point of emphasis here is to think about what it is that you're offering to God in prayer or in your commitments. Do not be hasty, verse 2, in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on the earth. You're talking to God. When you make a vow to God, you're, you're making a vow to God. You're committing to Him. And then he says in verse 4 of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for He takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. And then in verse 5, it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Have you ever made a vow to God? Well, let me, let me help you answer that question by asking you to think about the marriage ceremony. If you are married, did you make a vow then? You made a vow because that's what we do. We, we read our vows and the preacher reads the vows and what do you say at the end? I do. In other words, I, I'm going to keep my vow. I'm going to keep these promises that I'm entering into and that I have vowed with you. Well, when you become a child of God, you enter into a marriage relationship with Jesus. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 to those in the church at Corinth, and he said, I betrothed you to Christ. You, you have made vows. You may not have thought about it, but you have made vows. And we're going to delve a little bit more deeply into that in just a moment. But in Job chapter 22, and this is not Job speaking, it's one of Job's friends, but as harsh and critical and maybe misguided as those friends were in their discourse with Job, they also spoke a lot of truth, and I think this is one of those uh, statements. In Job chapter 22 and verse 7, when he said, You will pray to him and he will hear you, 
and you will pay your vows. You see how he's connecting prayer with the keeping of vows? I think Jonah understood that. I think Jonah understood that when, when God delivered him from the belly of the well, and he prayed that God would do that, then on the other side, his responsibility now would be to keep those vows. Whatever I have vowed to the Lord, you hear my prayer, I'm going to follow through on it. Well, when you became a child of God, you may have prayed. You may have prayed and you may have asked God to forgive you of your sins. But you made other commitments. In the book of Luke and the ninth chapter, beginning at verse 57, we read about those who told Jesus that they would follow him wherever he went. And Jesus responded and he said, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. When you become a child of God, you're basically committing. You're entering into a vow to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. He said to another, verse 59, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. He said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord. But first permit me to go say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. We need to have a heart of commitment. In our prayer life, that is reflected in our real life, in our daily life. In chapter 14 of the book of Luke, Jesus teaching his disciples and those who would come after him, large crowds following Jesus. He turns around and he says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brothers and his sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So when you become a disciple, you are vowing that you're going to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You're going to follow his son wherever he would lead you. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You vow that you're going to take up your cross. You're going to sacrifice. You're going to experience humiliation and shame just as Jesus did. That's the heart of commitment. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to, to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying this man began to build and he was not able to finish. There's a thought process that is necessary in repentance. What king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Are you going to enter that battle? knowing that you're outnumbered. Can you do it? Or else, while the other is still afar away, he sends a delegation and he asks for terms of peace, so then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. You can't leave anything on the table. When you become a child of God, you make a commitment. 
you enter into a vow and you say, I'm not going to leave any of my life on the table. I'm going to give it all to you. When you look back, when you look back, the salt becomes saltless. Verse 34, salt is good, but even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile that is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That was one of those times in Jesus' ministry, I'm certain, that some may have stopped falling. They weren't ready to hear that. Jonah, in the belly of the well, said, God, you get me out of this. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Well, has God got us out of the belly of the well? He, he took us out of the bondage of sin, didn't he? When he forgave us of our sins, has God not done more for us than he did for Jonah? What's more important, deliverance from physical death or deliverance from spiritual death? The prayer of the penitent is a prayer offered by a heart of commitment. And that leads us into our last point. The prayer of the penitent is a prayer that expresses a desire for salvation. A desire for salvation. Going back to Jonah again, chapter 2, I noted earlier as we read the prayer, Jonah said, I've been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. He wanted to be saved. He, he wanted to be delivered from the belly of this well. If I'm truly penitent, then all that really matters is deliverance. All that really matters is salvation. Jonah had a lot of time to think about his life, about his decision to run from God, about his commitment, about his vows to God, about promises made in the past. He had a lot of time to think about that. And in the belly of a fish, in the belly of a well, all you really want is out. You don't want a bigger house. You don't want a nicer car. You don't want a job promotion. You don't want to increase in pay. All you really want is out. Well, when you realize what sin does to your soul, when you hit the bottom, all that really matters is getting out. It's just recognizing that the Lord is the source of salvation. You see this mindset in many of those who lived during the time of Christ. And it was expressed by Simeon when Jesus was presented and the sacrifices were made in accordance with the old law by Joseph and Mary. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. But here's a man who is looking for the consolation of Israel. What is he looking for? He's looking for salvation. And then we see a prophetess by the name of Anna who had lived her life after the death of her husband in the temple daily serving God with fastings and prayers. And at the moment 
that she realized she was in the presence of the recently born Messiah. She began giving thanks to God. And she continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Israel. They were all wanting out. They were all wanting to be in a place of salvation. They were all wanting to be back in God's holy temple. In chapter 13 at verse 22 of the book of Luke, Jesus is going and he's, he's preaching in cities and villages on his way to Jerusalem, realizing that his life is soon to end. Someone asked the question, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. What's the difference between those who are striving to enter and those who are seeking to enter? Strive is the stronger word. Those who seek, they want to be there, but they're not really striving. They're not really giving it their all. They're not all in. Jesus said once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you were from. Then they'll begin to say, we ate. We drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. You know, we often use the, the expression guilty by association. You can't be innocent by association. If your parents are the most devout Christians on the face of this earth, their devoutness will not save you. If you're a member of the most devout church, the devoutness of those around you will not save you. You're alone in the belly of the well. Only God can bring you out, but the presence of Jesus is not enough. We say often, well, where two or three are gathered in his name, he is there. Lord, we ate, we drank in your presence, you taught in our streets, and he'll say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. And who are the evildoers? It's those who weren't striving. They, they weren't striving to enter through the, the narrow door. Is salvation everything? What are you leaving on the table? Paul is another example of one who, who left it all. He, he left nothing on the table. And he writes of that in the book of Philippians and the third chapter Looking back, he writes, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. You see, Jonah, uh, Paul had lived his life in the belly of a well. He was looking for the consolation of Israel, but he was looking in all the wrong places. And when he came to realize that he was wrong. 
for three days and three nights. He was blind. <laughs> he could not see. He might as well have been in the belly of a fish. And when Ananias came to him and said, Arise, why delay? Be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. He did it because he had a desire for salvation. And then he wrote in verse uh, 8, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. It's interesting that Jesus took what happened to Jonah and said to the unbelieving generation of his time, the only sign that will be given to you is the sign of Jonah. Jonah became a sign or a symbol of the resurrection. Jesus was in the tomb for three days and three nights, and then God raised him from the dead. Well, in a very real sense, he raised Jonah from the dead. Jonah had this desire for salvation. Paul had this desire for salvation, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. All of these dimensions of Jonah's prayer should find their way into our prayer life if we're truly penitent, if we're truly sorrowful when we sin, and we truly want to be restored. In our prayer, does God see, does God hear a voice of thanksgiving? Does he see a heart of contentment and a desire for salvation? These thoughts are yours. Let's go now to God in prayer.